This morning we'll be back in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 4 to verse 13. John says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and the three, the three are one. And there are three that bear witness on the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has a son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God says God to help us this morning. Father, we do thank you that you have given us a heart to believe in the Son of God. And Father, we thank you that our victory in this life is only because of him. And Father, we pray that as we look at these passages this morning, that you will strengthen us in our faith, but above that, that you will strengthen us in our love for our Savior. Father, we ask it in his name. Amen. Last time we looked at the victory of faith, and I'm just kind of kind of piggyback on that. Today we'll be looking at the object of saving faith, because if we don't understand the object of saving faith, then we won't understand the victory of our faith. So 1 John 5, verse 5, John says, Who is he who overcomes the world, or who is he who is the victor of the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So he's telling us that the one that's victorious over the world is the one that, ble that believes that Jesus is the Christ, or you could say that Jesus is the Messiah. And victorious work, victorious faith concerns the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that personal name Jesus points to us to his real humanity, and his divine name, Son of God, speaks of Jesus' true deity. So the statement that Jesus is the Son of God emphasizes to us the union of humanity and deity in one person. It emphasizes to us John 1.14, where John in his gospel said, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when I make the statement that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, what does that mean? I mean, what am I actually confessing? Well, the first thing we want to look at this morning, to believe is, is more than just to mentally assent or agree to the truth. It's more than just saying, I believe. 
I remind you of the Apostle James. James said in James chapter 2, where he's dealing with faith without works is dead. In verse 19, he says, you believe that there is one God? He said, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. In other words, James is saying, that here's the one way he could say that. He said, it's excellent that you believe that there is one God. He said, the demons have faith like that, and it makes them tremble. And when the demons tremble because they believe it's one God, it's not because they do it in reverence to God, but it's at their doom that is coming from God. So the point being of what John is saying this morning is that believing, saving faith is more than mental assent and agreement to the truth. What believing involves is personal commitment to the truth that you say that you believe. Uh, believing is a living faith. Saving faith intellectually accepts and it actively commits itself to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And this personal commitment to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God will be actively seen in how you live your life in this world. It's not just our words, but our lives should tell the world that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And you cannot separate them. And that's what a lot of people do and a lot of people that believe that they are Christians because they got my, as Pastor Jim says, my Jesus get out of jail card. Listen, there is no faith without a life to go along with it because it's a dead, it's not a living faith. So saving faith will be actively seen in how you live your life in this world and not just our words, but our lives should simply say that we do believe that he's the son of God. So John is saying that the fruit of embracing the truth that Jesus is the son of God, and this is the good news for us this morning, is that you will overcome, you will be victorious over this world because this is the mighty victorious faith that overcomes the world. This is the faith that will overcome all the allurements, all the snares, all the traps that the world will throw at you and I as we live in this wicked, evil world. Now this faith given to us by God is the power that will overcome this world. See, a false faith and a temporary faith will not overcome the world. Only a true faith will overcome the world. So those who are the recipients of this faith in Jesus Christ, once you've been saved and born again by the Spirit of God, once you have come to Christ and confessed him as Savior of your life, you now have the power to not be squeezed into the mold of this world. You have the power to now to not be squeezed into the mold of its ways, its form, its fashion, its system of ethics, its way of thinking. You have, not, you have the power now not to bow to the God of this world, but you can overcome this world. You can conquer this, conquer this world by your life, and you can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what John basically says in 1 John 5, 4 he who has received life from God has conquered the world. Now, the question this morning, you have to ask yourself this morning, do you, does your life say that you believe and that you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Are you victorious in this world? Because our lives are a reflection of what we say we believe or it's a contradiction of what you say you believe. So does your life say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And so when you say that, you're saying that he is my savior. I believe God sent him on a mission to save my soul and that I have the victory 
over this world. Now, when I say that, what is it to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? You say these things. I believe in his divine mission, his authority, his office. I believe in his person. I believe in his saving power. When I say that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I'm not just saying just anything. You're saying everything could ever be said that is right. And it's right about the Son of God. And so when you say that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're saying that I believe that Jesus is all that he claimed to be in the Word of God. That he is the only way to be made right with God. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah sent by God, the Savior of the world. He's the God-man. He's the only mediator between God and man. That you need any more. Because you, you can keep going. And you can keep going, and you can keep going. I believe he's the Messiah that was to come. And the reason why I'm telling you these things this morning, because to believe that Jesus is a Christ, if you lived in John's day, it would bring you persecution, and it could possibly cost you your life. And so we're saying this morning, to make that confession that Jesus is the Son of God, it can bring persecution, it can bring ridicule, and eventually it could cost you your life. But we're telling you this morning that the object of true saving faith is Jesus Christ. And if you have a true saving faith, if I have a true saving faith, you will willingly lay your life down for the Son of God. And that's what a saving faith will do. So simply what John is saying in these passages, and you know it's almost taken me like four years now to read this letter, so I should know this letter real well, and it's taken a while. I was telling Derek the other day, I said, I was going to try to beat you through so that I can get through it first, John, before you get through it, Mark. I said, till I got to chapter five. And then I said, well, <laughs> but anyway. But to put it by the Apostle John, that the one that's victorious over the world is the one whose faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the object of all saving faith. And the apostles that taught us that Jesus is the Son of God you can thank God this morning that that faith was passed down to us because other than that, the world would overtake each and every one of us. But you are victorious because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to deny that Jesus is the Son of God, you destroy the whole gospel. In other words, to deny that Jesus is the Son of God, it will effectively nullify the apostolic message of salvation that has been passed down to us. But acceptance of this message gives you personal assurance. It gives you certain victory in your conflict with the forces of evil. And now, the conflict is not over, but you are guaranteed the victory. But the cr true Christian faith, one man says, is Christological. In other words, true Christian faith is Jesus Christ. And this faith that is victorious, it is a weak faith. It's an up and down faith. It's a faith that wavers much, as, as I would say it that way. But you know, what a, uh, you know what a saving faith really is? And I want you to get this this morning. It may be a weak faith. It may be a little faith. It may be an up and down faith. But I'm going to tell you what it is. It's a faith that is always at war. And that's what warfare is all about. It's up and down. It's wavering. It's one way, one day or another. And... This saving faith will make it to the end, and he will heal the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
enter into the joys of the Lord. Now, the people that have resided on this earth and died, they now reside in heaven because they believe that when they died that Jesus was the son of God. Just that simple fact and all that we talked about earlier that it entails. And they had more than just believism, but they had a faith that would overcome. They had a faith that would conquer. They had a faith that would actively did something in their lives when it comes to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we read through Revelation chapter two and verse three, and it has glorious promises to him who overcomes and to him who is victorious. It promises that Jesus promises them, I will give you this or I'll give you that. I'll grant you this or I'll grant you that. And they had a saving faith. They had a real faith, but they also had a faith that would waver, like I said. They had a faith that did seem like it was there one day and it was there the next day, but they fought the battle to the end. Say, well, what are you hitting at this morning? I'm hitting at believers. You know, I'm hitting at the fact that this is real. And this battle in the world is real. And, you know, I think about our church all the time, and we're growing younger. And, you know, we're going, growing younger, which is good for the church. But I want young people to realize that this world is going to challenge you with this fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And the more I look on YouTube and watch what people are saying about Christianity and the faith and Jesus and all the mocking and everything that's going on, I'm going like, you need to get firmly planted and built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and hold fast to him and go through whatever you have to go through as a Christian. Now, what John changes to in chapter 5, he talks about God's testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. And John says he writes these things because of the false teachers that are on the scene. We've been talking about these Gnostic heretics, and he's dealing with their heresies and their false teachings all the way through this letter, starting with chapter 1 all the way through the end. Now, these false teachers, what they're doing, they're attacking saving faith, you know, as God's testimony, which he has testified of his son. Specifically, as we started out by telling you, is the literal incarnation of the Son of God the second person of the Trinity that was sent by the Father to die for the sins of the world. That's what they are challenging when John wrote this letter. So in these passages, John testifies to the fact that Jesus is God's only begotten son. And what John does is he gives proof and he gives witness to the fact that Jesus is the son of God. So the first thing we see in these passages is the historical witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. John says this, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. Another way to say this, He it is whose coming was attested by means of water and blood. In other words, attested means it gave proof and evidence of his coming by water and blood. And then John says, it's the spirit that bears witness because the spirit is truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate bearing witness to the truth that Jesus is the son of God. So it's important, the phrase that is used in this passage, he that has come is a key to the whole passage because he's speaking of his coming as a past historical event. In other words, when he speaks of Jesus coming 
And most of them, if you looked at this, you would believe this and think this way. He's not speaking of his birth in Bethlehem. Okay? He's speaking of his public appearance as the promised Messiah who was to come into the world. And so the gospel references to the Messiah, when you read the word of God, it will say things like this. He that came, or he that cometh, or he who is to come. In other words, when this language is used, he's speaking of the one who accomplished the mission that was entrusted to him by God. So when you look at that and you say, he that cometh, the first thing that will come into your mind, it would be in my mind too, unless you studied this out, you would think of his coming at his birth at Bethlehem. But the first thing he says that he came by water, in Matthew 11, 2 to 3, I just want to read you what John said when he was in prison, when uh, he had sent his disciples to go to Jesus and see who he really was. Matthew chapter 11, 2 to 3. John heard in prison about the works of Christ, and he sent two of his disciples and said to him, and this is the language they use of the Messiah who is to come, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And then Jesus answered, go tell John the things which you hear and see, and he talked, told him all the wondrous miracles that he was done. But he says, are you the coming one? John 11, 23 to 27, Jesus is at the home of Lazarus' sister Martha, and because Lazarus is dead, and he's assuring her that her dead brother will rise from the grave and live again. And Jesus tells her that he is the resurrection of life and the life in verse 25. And Jesus says this, he who believes in me, though he may die, yet he will live. And then he asked her, do you believe this? And this is where she answered him. And she said to him, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And this is what she says, who is to come in the world or come into the world. Then we have the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, verse 25. The Samaritan woman says to Jesus, and I'm just going to give you part of what she says. She said <clears throat> that I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And there could be many more scriptures I can give you concerning the coming of the Messiah. But so John is basically saying that the historical public appearance of the Messiah is the fact that he came by water and he came by blood. Now, what is the meaning of water and what is the meaning of blood? Because John is saying that the water and the blood refer to these historical events that took place in the life of Jesus in which he was revealed to be the promised Messiah, the Son of God. Now, there are different views concerning the meaning and the interpretation of the water and the blood, and these different views are by well-known biblical scholars. And, you know, just because somebody's a biblical scholar doesn't mean they're always right. You say, well, they would have to be because they're a scholar. If they was always right, then they wouldn't be arguing with other scholars. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? So... And I'm not saying that any of them are wrong, but what I'm saying is, is that sometimes when we look at biblical scholars, that we're afraid to disagree with them on certain things. And I won't even give you their names because you, you'll probably kill me before I get out the door who told you what they believe about this. But, you know, they have different views about this concerning the meaning of this interpretation of the water and the blood by these scholars. For example, number one, some interpret the water and the blood with the water and the blood that issued from the body of Jesus on the cross. 
you know, the two soldiers were hung beside Jesus and they wanted to get him down before, you know, before the Sabbath day. And so they told him to go and break their legs. And then when they got to Jesus, he was uh, alive. So, I mean, he was dead, so they didn't have to break his legs. But they did break the legs of the two men that were crucified beside them. And then the soldier took the spear and he stuck it in the side of Jesus. And then the scripture said that water and blood came out. I'm sure you read that. That's in John 19, 34 to 35. Okay, so simple refutation of that, because I'm just going to give you two this morning. John says in 1 John 5, 6, this is who came by water and blood. Okay, and what John is saying there, this is he who appeared to the public and came and made a public proclamation by water and by blood. So this first example I'm giving you is that one man said the water and the blood is when, the, when he stuck the spear in Jesus' side and the water and the blood came out. Now the second thing I'm going to give you this morning, that's all I'm going to give you this morning. Some would interpret the water and the blood that he is referring to here as the water being Christian baptism, okay, and the blood being the Lord's Supper. Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, I go back to the same argument. John says, he who came. That's the key to interpreting this. He who came, because what he's talking about here, is, it speaks of a specific historical event that happened at a specific time in the life of Jesus Christ. And another thing about Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper these are observances that occur over and over again. And these are observances that are ongoing in the life of the church. So these are not one-time events, but whatever the water and the blood means, it means that these things happened one time in Jesus' life that declared him to be the Son of God. And like I said, great men of God hold these two views right here have great respect for them. I learned a lot from their writings and stuff like that. But even them, not all of them, agree on these views. So the question is this morning, is what is the water and what is the blood? Well, I'm going to give you the oldest and most natural view or interpretation of this. Number one, the water, some believe, and quite a few people believe, is a reference to Christ's baptism a reference to Christ's baptism. And it's a reference to his baptism with the attendant witnesses to his identity as the Messiah at the beginning of his ministry. So when he came on the scene and he was baptized by the apostle John, I mean, John the Baptist, then at the beginning of his ministry, that identified him as the Messiah who was to come. The blood... They believe he's speaking of his bloody death upon the cross. When he speaks of the water and the blood, he speaks of the blood concerning his bloody death on the cross. And that refers to the consummation of his saving ministry on the cross. See, at Christ's baptism, and we'll read a scripture too concerning this, we, he has the Father's seal of approval that he is the Son of God. And I'm just going to read you one scripture, uh, Matthew 3, 17, because this is one that will show you that it's approved by the Father that he is the Son of God. 
and what he says in this passage, if I get there today, <laughs> he says, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So it is his baptism. The father speaks and he puts his seal of approval on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You can read the same account in Mark chapter 1 verse 11. And because uh, he says suddenly a voice came from heaven and he says that uh, he says this is my he says you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Another one is in John 1.26. John 1.26. Where we're looking at Jesus' baptism. And this is as he came by the water. He said, John answered then saying, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he whose coming after me is preferred before me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Beth Arbor, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is him of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified, and John bears witness to this, that he is the Son of God. So we see that we have the Father's seal, seal of approval on our Lord Jesus Christ at his baptism, and we also see the divine outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon him at the opening of his ministry. And one man says this, he says, the voice from heaven and the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him are not the, merely the beginnings of his ministry, but it explains the whole of his ministries. This happened all the way through Jesus' ministry. And he goes on to say that his bloody death on the cross is not merely the close of his ministry, but it does explain to us his passion. And so John is saying that Jesus, on the day that he was baptized, basically this was a public proclamation that he truly was the Son of God. That's the inter interesting thing about John. John got to hear the, the, hear the true voice of God from heaven twice. It was at Jesus' baptism, and it was also at the Mount of Transfiguration. So John, when he says something in the gospel, and when he gives us truths out of the gospel, he was around all these things that happened. And he's a steady, purposeful witness of Jesus and who he was. And that's why he starts out in this book in verse 1, saying we knew him, we touched him, we walked with him. You know, we, he is truly the Son of God. Of course, he was dealing with, the, like I said, the Gnostic heretics, but John actually seen 
things that we would write books about if we ever seen a war around them. Because he heard the voice of God. And you know, he heard John the Baptist said, this is the Lamb of God. So when you read these things in the Word of God, these things literally happen, okay? Then in verse 6, John goes on to say, not only by water, but by water and blood. And what he's doing, as he does through most of his letter, he's dealing again with these heretics that he was dealing with concerning who Jesus was because they taught that Jesus came by water, but he didn't come by blood. And what the Gnostic heretics did is they denied the death of Jesus. Okay, well, if you deny the death of Jesus, you don't have any gospel at all. You know, and uh, there's a whole lot they said, and I'm not going to give you everything they said, but they taught that Jesus was a mere man, and they said the divine Christ came upon him at his baptism. And that's why they believe, you know, in his baptism. And they believe that the divine Christ departed from him before he died. And so what that basically is saying is, is they're saying that Jesus was a merely uh, everyday man like everybody else is and he died as a mere man and that he did not die as the son of God you know he's merely a martyr or a man that did good works and good deeds but he didn't die as the son of God and so in the extent of all their heresies and if you read them all they denied his humanity and they denied his deity which completely does away with the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now they have a they have a truckload of heresies that you wouldn't believe they believed. But they was perverting the, the Son of God. And when you pervert the Son of God, you don't have any gospel to preach. And I, re, I re, remind you back when we seen that these heretics, some of them were disciples of John. And so, you know, it's a crazy thing because, like, you can be in a church like we're in right now, and there's people that can be taught real well, and they can hear good teaching and know everything about the Word of God, and then leave the church and go somewhere else and teach heresy because they twist and pervert what they heard. And so John is dealing with these people that once sit upon him, but they were denying Jesus' deity and his humanity and his incarnation. And that's why John is saying, this is the one that came by water and by blood. And these, in these ways, he was declared to be the son of God. Now, I want to give you an important summary of what John is saying in these passages this morning. Okay, the water, which is his baptism, and the blood, which is his death on the cross, they were absolutely necessary for Jesus to carry out his messianic mission. This had to be done. You know, this is a supreme manifestation of his messiahship. These two events stand out more prominently than any other two events recorded in the mystery, I mean the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, at his baptism, Jesus consecrated himself to his redemptive mission. And as he did that, he was divinely approved by a voice from heaven, and he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus was basically saying that I will do what my father sent me to do. What did he come to do? This is basically one thing, to die for sinners. He was headed for the cross. 
And Jesus said, okay, today, and I'm, I'm putting this in my words, okay, today, so I'm consecrating myself to do what the Father has sent me to do. And, you know, it was to die for the sins of the whole world. And like Pastor Derek preached last week, this was a gruesome thing. This was an awful thing, you know, because he took on full humanity to think about what he just consecrated himself to do. And it's just amazing that he would even do it, but he was God, and that's why he did do it, and he did it. And so at the cross, when we said his messianic mission was consummated, that simply means that the work was done. It's the beginning of his work and the ending of his work. His propitiatory death, when he died on the cross, that constituted him to be savior of the world. And oh, what a glorious thing it is because John gloried in this stuff because to John, the cross was the heart of the gospel. And he knew why Jesus came into this world. And, and, and this was the object of his coming into the world to make it to the cross. And guess what, brethren? If he didn't, we wouldn't be here this morning. But he did, and it proved that he was the son of God. Now, 1 John 5, 6, John also says, and it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. So along with the two historical witnesses that testify that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God, then we have the special function of the Holy Spirit that bears witness to the fact that Jesus Christ came by water and he came by blood. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate one who bears testimony from whom all the apostles derive their testimony for, from that they pass down to us. Where did they get that from? And you can read John uh, chapter 15, 16, 13, 14, 15, 16, and you can see that the apostles passed down everything to us that they were taught by the Holy Spirit, even though they saw these things happen and they passed it down. To us because the Holy Spirit is truth and one man says it this way the Holy Spirit is the ultimate testifier of Jesus did you want to say it again he's the ultimate testifier of Jesus and people tell me all the time you, you need to go to that church it's a spirit-filled church you know I ask them do they talk about Jesus because if they don't then they don't have the ultimate testimony of what has happened and what he's come to the world to do. You know, I heard a man say the other day, he said, the only message is the message of holiness. I'm going, you're wrong, totally wrong. There's only one holy one, and that's Jesus. And we're holy because he's holy, you know. And that's why God said, be ye holy as I am holy, as we sung this morning. But what I'm saying is, is that the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is moving within a church, the people will love Jesus. They have to. Because he's, he's the one that gives you the ulti, ultimate testimony of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and what happened. And the Holy Spirit today, he still continues to bear witness to the truth that is in Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, 26 and John 16, 13, Jesus calls him the spirit of truth. And then what does Jesus say after that? And he will testify of me. And so Thank God that we have the gospel here. Thank God that he's raised up young men to continue to preach it. You need to fill your children with it. 
because Jesus is the one that came by water and by blood. And the whole purpose of the church on the earth today and always has been is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. To him be glory in the church throughout all ages. Well, he's still bearing witness to this truth and he will to the end of the world. But we're saved this morning because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why we're saved by his power is because he applies the gospel of Jesus Christ to our hearts. Now, as we get next week, and we get in more controversy in 1 John 5, 7, and 8, but what, it, what they do, what John does in these passages is he sets forth the infallible witnesses to this truth that must be received and believed by all who will be saved, simply concerning that Jesus is the Son of God. I don't know about you this morning. It makes my heart happy that he came by water and he came by blood. And what makes me even more happier is we have a record of it. And a lot of people say, well, why do you believe it? You know, all you're doing is you just read the book and you just hear about things that's in the word of God. I always take them back to what Jesus told Thomas. Blessed are those who don't see and believe. That's what faith is. It's the evidence of things not seen. And once the Holy Spirit saves you, you'll believe everything in this book. I didn't say that you'll agree with everything. I know we have translation problems and all that kind of stuff. But when Jesus comes on the scene, I don't worry about all this stuff. I just know he saved me, washed me in his blood, and that he is the one who came by water and blood. And the reason why he came by the water and the blood is to declare who he was and to make sure a people will be made ready for God. And they will be in heaven when it's all over. Well, I know we have unbelievers in the room this morning. And I just want to read a passage that John says here in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And then verse 12, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have a life. And he's just basically saying the difference between everybody in this room this morning. It's only one difference in all of us. The son of God. Some love him, some don't. And you know, that's why we cry week after week, come to the savior of the world. The, the invitation is continually out. And because this room, we have saved people, we have people that need Christ, but the thing that we have that's good that we have in this church, we have the message to get you saved. And that's the thing you ought to thank God for. Because if you look at the churches in the world today, and I'm not here to criticize churches and stuff like that, they're busy doing everything but preaching this gospel. This is the only thing that will save sinners. You know, and there was an awesome price paid for sinners to be saved. And so if you're unsaved this morning, you say, well, you know, I just can't believe. Then cry out to God and say, help my unbelief. Give me a heart to believe. You know, because we as your pastors, our goal is this, is that everybody that sits in these beautiful seats will be saved. And when we give account on the day of judgment, we want to do it with joy and not grief. And how do you do that? 
believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, such a simple truth. I told myself the other day, it's really not rocket science. But you know what? If you don't have a heart that can receive it, it's rocket science. Because it doesn't make sense to you what we're saying. But if God fills you with his Holy Spirit, you will, lead, you will love these things. You will believe these things. I even believe if God filled you with the Holy Spirit, you'll like our music. Y'all supposed to laugh. No, people don't like our music. I'm serious. And uh, I tell you, before I came here, we was in a charismatic church. So you know, charismatics rock. Okay, so, you know, up and down all over the place and everything. And so you won't believe this because this is going to sound pious. Manisha and I was actually looking for a relief from the charismatic music because some verses we sang 16 times before we get to the next verse. You know, we just keep saying the same refrain over and over again, stuff like that. And actually, when we came here and they opened up the Trinity hymn book, I thought I had went to heaven <laughs> because of what it said. I don't care how it sounds, what it said. I can't, see, when you can't sing, it don't matter how it sounds. But you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't matter. I tell you what gets me about the Trinity is what it says. And it's all about Christ, all about glorying in God and doing God's will. But he's the one that came by water and the blood. And God proved it. And there's other witnesses we'll look at next week uh, whenever I preach again. But anyway, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. We cannot preach it enough. But he's the Savior. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful this morning that we have your precious holy word. And Father, greater than that, we have your holy son. And Father, he gave us his word. Lord, he's the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to you but by him. And we do pray that these words that we've looked at this morning would cause us to be more and more conformed into his image, cause us to love him more, and Lord, that this word that we heard this morning will cause us to love the loss of this world and be zealous to go out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for how faithful you have been to us as a church. Lord, we're watching our children get saved. We're watching sinners come in from the outside and get saved. Father, we have watched you move. And Father, we pray that you will continue to move and that sinners will continue to be saved. Father, you've been so gracious to us that we could never thank you enough. We ask it in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.